Welcome to this episode on the FCA's Consumer Duty. Today, we'll be discussing how effective product design strategies can help firms meet the FCA's expectations under the duty, as well as avoid causing consumers foreseeable harm. I'm Connie Faith, an associate in Linklater's financial regulation team in London, and today I'm joined by my colleague, senior associate Duncan Campbell, and the same team. Hello, everyone. This is a unique podcast episode for us, where we'll be venturing into the world of how financial products and services are designed. To help us chat through the more technical side of this conversation, we have Lighthouse joining us today to talk about some of the basic principles of good design. So Tom, would you like to please introduce yourself and Lighthouse to our listeners? Hi everyone, great to be here. I'm Tom, I'm one of the co-founders of Lighthouse. We're a UX and UI design agency based in London and I myself, I'm an ex-UX designer. I've been in digital since the late 90s and have been running Lighthouse since around 2008. So we've seen a lot of change in how we do and what we call things over the years. It's been quite the ride. Although I don't get involved in design delivery anymore, I still have a keen interest in best practice and modern product thinking. Thanks, Tom. So we'll start today's episode by exploring what UX and UI is in the context of product design. We'll then explore UX best practice and key principles for firms as they engage in product design to deliver good outcomes under the duty. Lastly, we'll draw on some of the interesting approaches agencies like Lighthouse take to this important work. So, Tom, can you please explain at a high level for our listeners what we mean when we're talking about UX and UI? UX and UI are two parts of what we just call product design. UX or user experience design is a set of activities that we carry out at the start of any product design process to understand what the user needs so we can then scope and design an appropriate solution. Good UX is heavily reliant on research and testing, but also encompasses creating digital assets like user flows, wireframes, that kind of thing. UX is a continuous process, not just a one-off. So any good product team will tell you that this just keeps on going as you iterate and improve over time. Moving on to UI or user interface design. This is what you'd usually do after you've carried out the UX and essentially putting a a layer of polish and design over the top of the assets you've previously created. It's more than just making stuff look pretty though. That would be doing it a disservice. At Lighthouse, we create enterprise level, scalable and accessible design systems that document every facet of the product interface. It's really an asset that can be used by engineering teams to create the screens and features of the product across any device it's deployed to. So really complex stuff. It's important to understand the distinction between the two and the importance of UX. It's relatively easy to make something look nice from a UI perspective, but it's harder than you might think to do solid UX work that really gets to the bottom of what you need to design for your user and more importantly, why. And Connie, why should firms be paying attention to UX in the context of the consumer duty? Robust product design features is really important for firms to meet all four of the duty's outcomes. So most obviously it's relevant to meeting the duty's first outcome, which is to ensure that product products and services are designed to meet the needs and characteristics of a firm's target customers. But actually, robust design is important for firms to consider to meet the duties other three outcomes as well. So to ensure customers receive their fair value for products and services, firms will need to consider how UX and UI can both provide non-financial benefits to customers as well as impose certain non-financial costs. It's also crucial to ensuring that firms meet the customer understanding and customer support outcomes. So effective design here can enable customers 
customers to better understand the products and services they're using, improve customer support experiences, as well as in some cases mitigate the risk of customer harm. It's also important to note here that by employing these strategies, firms can not only meet the four consumer duty outcomes, but also crucially avoid causing consumers foreseeable harm, which is one of the duties cross-cutting rules and a rule which we think is going to feature prominently in FCA supervisory interventions and uh, enforcement action not too far down the track now. Right, so let's draw on Lighthouse's expertise now to explore in more detail what steps firms need to take in practice to craft well-designed and researched financial products. So as part of the duty, firms need to think about how to design products effectively for customers in their target market. Clearly understanding the needs of those customers is crucial. So Tom, what steps should firms take in practice to do this as part of a product's design process? So it all starts with a strong knowledge of the customer in the target market. It's all about user experience after all. An important part of the product design process is making sure that all of this is documented and shared to make sure everyone understands who they're designing and building a product for. There are loads of things that we generally want to find out about users and go on to document. And here are just a few examples from the obvious to the the more in-depth. A great one to start with demographics. For example, age group, family, relationship status, job, salary range, location, that kind of thing. Moving on to goals, for example, personal life goals, professional goals, and financial goals. We'd identify goals that are relevant to the product or service, and it can be a mix of short, medium, and long-term goals and, and can get as detailed as needed, really. Next up, blockers, issues. So what's holding them back from achieving these goals? What's in their control? What's out of their control? This can be pretty wide ranging and maybe very different for individual personas. Um, It's common for both the goals and blockers to be teased out using workshops with internal and sometimes external stakeholders and or customers. When it comes to talk about FCA compliance, this is where things might start to get quite interesting, actually. More vulnerable users may have a lot more detail required here to show the unique challenges that they may be facing. Competitors, solutions. So what do or have they tried to achieve these goals? What other options are out there? Why might prefer one over another? It's important to note that while we're concerned with digital products and services, competitors are in no way limited to other digital tools only. We want to include anything that might be an alternative from a traditional method to a digital solution. For example, an alternative to your current bank might be another competitor high street bank. It might be a new app-based challenger bank, or it could just be stuffing your money on the mattress. All of these are options, all have their pros and cons. You may know lots about your customer already, and that's really good. However, it's important to not just rely on assumptions and hunches especially if the understanding here helps you meet legal guidelines. You should revisit your user personas regularly and update them based on what you continue to learn about them. You should also question whether these are still your relevant personas over the years. A great example is Lighthouse. Our target customer has changed several times over the course of 15 years and we make sure we do regular reviews to uh, check that our core persona is still relevant and up to date. The point you mentioned there about research seems really important. What types of research should firms be carrying out in practice? I mean, I imagine there are quite a few options here. Uh, You're completely right. There are absolute loads, but it's probably best that I pick a few to describe and give you their pros and cons. So starting with one-to-one qualitative interviews, this really is our go-to method for research and discovery, and, and it's really high value. Well-planned interviews allow for probing around topics that can reveal lots more hidden insight as you build connection and and rapport. But they're hard to organize uh, and more time-consuming. And you also need to be pretty good at them to make the most of the interview and avoid collecting biased results. It's quite a natural thing to inject as a human. 
Next up, quantitative research or surveys. This is a really common method as well and, and super useful. They can be done quickly and at scale. They're great for getting answers to specific questions and getting quant data back that you can analyze more easily. A con here is that they're not as personal and the questions need to be designed carefully to get meaningful responses uh, and to avoid dropouts and non-completions, which happens a lot. Next up, data evaluation. This is really just reviewing any data set that, that you have. Good examples would be web traffic. Most of us will have that on our sites or products or customer support queries, which is a very different type of data, but incredibly useful as well. This is a great adjunct to other methods, but limited, poor or noisy data sets can lead to a lot of false conclusions. Web stats are very prone to this problem. Cherry picking as well, that can also introduce bias into the results. Another one that's worth calling out is diary studies. Less common, but this is a really good way to monitor people over a period of time and document all their actions and thoughts. It can be done by shadowing the subject or by self-reporting or, or journaling. It's a great way to build up a really detailed picture, but hard to get participation for obvious reasons and really hard to scale adequately. Focus groups. This really isn't a technique that we use, but I thought it worth including here as we, we do hear a lot of people using them in their research phases. They're great for getting a good reaction to a product in a specific setting, but the main problem that we find is the loudest voice in the room often biases everyone else, which is really not what you want from a research method. Last one, competitor analysis. This is usually more about the market and less about customers' needs. It's clearly important and can reveal ways in which you could uh, improve your products to better meet customers' needs. Customer feedback on competitors is often a goldmine of info that's surprisingly easy to access, actually. It's best done once you already have a good understanding of your target customer so you can better achieve product market fit and understand your USP, as well as identify your competitors' design pitfalls, uh, which hopefully you can avoid. But it can be time-consuming and also difficult to interact with the relevant products to allow a, a really deep dive into the feature set. Some issues might only arise after weeks or, or even months of interacting with a product, so it can be really hard to tease out. So there are so many potential sources of data from research then, and they've got their pros and cons and choices to be made. How do you pull it all together and analyze it then? Yeah, it's really important to get this right. There are loads of tools out there, but we use one called Dovetail. We take all the research inputs into a central repository and tag with themes so we can group insight together and cut that data in multiple ways to research different topics. It's important to do tagging and analytics meticulously so you can produce actionable and understandable insight for people to review. We generally present our findings to teams as as part of an analysis stage, usually showing what we've learned, how it might affect our hypotheses, and what we'd recommend doing based on the insight. So there are huge benefits here to make these findings available for the wider team at, at all levels, not just UX is doing the research or the dedicated product team. So people can make informed decisions based on what's been learned directly from the user. Right, Tom. So it seems that using these different research techniques to really understand your customer and their needs right at the start of a product's design is really the cornerstone of the entire design process. So once you've got this foundation of useful customer research, how do firms then translate this into good design in your mind? Different people will have different flavors of this. Modern product design is a complex topic. Approaches differ and some people might focus more on research and discovery and others more on design systems to power layout and identity of apps. So I'd suggest that you put in place an agreed framework for your own team. We've done this and it helps our whole team to get on the same page and create efficiency and consistency in our output. Okay, and can you tell us a bit more about your framework? Yeah, sure thing. At Lighthouse, we, we set out our principles in Beam. So it, that's our product design framework created by our design team. I've broken this down into five principles that we consider to be important. They are put the user first, 
be flexible and ready to change, research and test regularly, collaboration is key, and the last one, design for everyone. I think it makes sense to talk about these in a bit more detail because these techniques can be practiced by everyone, not just design teams. In fact, if you train on design principles across your business, then for example, each frontline staff interaction with a customer can turn into a mini discovery of sorts and feedback session. And this can really be generating valuable insight constantly from your team. So put the user first. As UXers, we believe that we should always listen first before coming up with our own ideas and solutions. So we invest in understanding users before moving ahead. Research is absolutely absolutely critical. And you achieve your best results when you match your insight into users with business goals. So you don't just design to meet all findings from your research. Instead, you match what you hear from users with what you learn about the business from other stakeholders. This allows you to create good, innovative solutions. It's a really important thing to remember there. The next principle, be flexible and ready to change. It's a common human trait to get fixed on one solution and ignore other ideas. I've done it a million times. But it's important to keep an open mind and question things regularly. You need to assume that you're wrong and the path will change as you research and analyze, sometimes in really unexpected ways. A helpful approach here is to do small increments of change and, and do them frequently. Next up, you need to research and test regularly. It's not a one-off exercise. Bake research and testing into your product release cycle. This is essential. Keep testing assumptions and for new products, do a decent amount of discovery, whatever's necessary to answer the questions that you have. Along the way, it can be really helpful to test prototypes and then make iterative changes based on what you learn from those tests. Next up, collaboration is key. A good product will have the input of multiple specialisms. This includes design, but also frontline sales and support teams and senior stakeholders who understand the market and the vision for the business. This is important to get all of those viewpoints in one place. Finally, design for everyone. We firmly believe that this is important from the outset. We need to consider the multitude of different needs that people have, from those who have physical disabilities that can affect how they might interact with a tool, to those who suffer from mental conditions that will affect the tool's design in different ways. This obviously has huge parallels to what the FCA's consumer duty says about customers with vulnerable characteristics. It includes designing with accessibility guidelines in mind, but it goes way beyond that. And you should test your product with groups with particular needs. It's not always easy to get this right, but if your user base targets these people, then you need to address their needs. So this point about researching and testing regularly is a really important one. Compliance with the consumer duty is an ongoing obligation for firms, not just a one-off. And just because a product might have met the needs of a firm's target market when it was first designed doesn't mean that it will always continue to do so. Have you seen any of your clients, particularly financial services clients, really have to adjust a product's design down the line as a result of the needs of their target market changing? And if so, what particular challenges challenges do firms face when they try to redesign an existing product to do this? Well, really, the concept of a redesign is becoming a thing of the past. That's because, especially in the digital space, the design work is never done. Firms are iterating constantly and keeping an eye on user needs at all times. The best product teams will be doing constant research to make sure that their product is adapting to the market needs. Modern product teams should be working in agile environments that allow changes to the product to be designed, tested, and then passed to development ready for regular release. Those that don't operate in such environments will face more challenges. But it's really about that little and often principle that I spoke about before that allows a team to prioritize what they should be doing next and then act on that. So a couple of examples of our work, 
in recent years, we've worked with clients who were losing market share, and we came in to rework the UX and the UI to become market leading. We've assisted businesses who needed to flesh out their digital vision. So I've worked with them to help understand where they should take the business and design assets that allow them to communicate this internally, as well as use that for future development. We've also worked with organizations who just need to do more as they lack capacity. So I've come on board as their product design partner, collaborating with internal design teams and engineering departments to work through backlogs of high value improvements, rolling out regular changes to complex applications. All of these scenarios constitute some level of redesign, but you can probably understand that the focus behind them all is, is slightly different. That's almost all we have time for. So, Connie, what would be your three key takeaways from what we've just learned? So I think based on what Tom has shared with us, I think first, treat UX and UI as part of the intrinsic design of your product, not just your communication and support efforts. That will really help you get it right from the start. Secondly, do the work to really understand your customer. And thirdly, as Tom mentioned earlier, it's important to adopt a flexible mindset and be ready to adapt and change with your customers. Absolutely. Couldn't agree more. So, Tom, many thanks to you again. Any final messages for our listeners? Thanks so much for having me on. It's uh, It's been lots of fun, actually. I just hope that that was all useful and people now have a good understanding of the importance of research and UX. If people want to learn more about Lighthouse, then they can head over to wearelighthouse.com. There's loads more of our work up there and the things that we do. I believe there will be links in the show notes, including a, an audit service that we provide, which is a, it's a really great first step to help you identify problem areas with a detailed report on what might need to change to improve your UX and UI. Uh, So I look forward to hearing from people in the future if that's of interest. Yes, please do check out the show notes for all of that and also for a link to our webpage on the consumer duty with all of Linklater's insights, including our note on the final rules and the podcast series of which this episode is a part. And we're always here to help. So don't hesitate to contact us or anyone else at Linklater's or Lighthouse for that matter, if you would like to discuss further. Thanks very much for listening.